This project was produced by Planet FM with support from New Zealand On Air. The series features 15 candid conversations with people from migrant and former refugee backgrounds, sharing their stories, their lived experience, their own perspectives and covering some sensitive topics. I'm Alina from Storio, and you're listening to Pass the Mic. Due to the global pandemic, we've recorded these conversations from the comfort of our homes. This is episode nine. And in this episode, I'm talking to lovely Dizon, who's a Filipino New Zealander. Let's talk a little bit about this work you're doing, your research, and a little bit behind the statement. Asians aren't as healthy as you think? Yeah, I think it's really interesting because I started my PhD not really knowing what I was doing. And I think to a broader extent, still not really knowing what I'm doing. But what happened along the way is I realized, so I was really interested in learning a bit more about how Asian young people sort of negotiate their ethnic identity, being here and there. I'm not really feeling a sense of belonging to either place. And then as I started my PhD, I realized, at least overseas, there's still quite a bit of research in that area, but no one ever talked about how to help them. So it was often like, these guys are having a crap time. They have crap mental health. Look at them. They're struggling. And then it kind of ended there. I really want to make a difference for these young people. I want them to know that they're being heard. So yeah, I try to put myself out there um, a little bit in terms of, yeah, being in media, even though that stuff is real like scary because I want these young people to know that they're being heard. And often the perception is, is that Asians are super healthy, that they've got no problems, that there's nothing wrong with them, that they're basically like white people, but they're not white. And in some of the research that I do personally for my PhD, but also some work I do alongside my supervisor and the Adolescent Health Research Group, Asian young people are going through it just like any young person and have really particular set of needs that aren't being addressed at the moment. If you were to explain a little bit of the background of that research, like what is it what did you find, I guess, or what is it trying to, yeah, what picture is out there that exists and what is the real picture behind it? From that paper in particular, what we wanted to highlight was that when you look at Asian as one group, they're actually not a homogenous group of people. We all have, oh my gosh, different cultures have different needs. What a surprise. And so what that paper argued and did with some analysis is that it actually disaggregated the Asian populations a bit further down. So I think it was South Asian, East Asian, Chinese and Indian and found that there were differences between. But I guess when it comes to Asians being not as healthy as you think, so while like Asians typically don't drink, um, at least it says so in the data, and they don't have sex, which I thought was quite funny, <laughs> um, They actually have really high mental health need. There's a particular subset of Asian young people who experience quite high rates of socioeconomic deprivation, um, household and domestic, like witnessing or being a part of household and domestic violence, not feeling safe in their neighborhood, experiencing discrimination, not getting access to healthcare when they need it. So there's actually quite a lot going on for them, but those things often aren't addressed. What was your path into doing the specific 
research. You know, when I was, I actually studied biomedical sciences at uni and when I was in my third year, I remember we had lots of PhD students who would come and tell us their topics and I thought they're fascinating, but I was like, how did you, you know, especially when you're a bachelor's degree level student, you're like, how the hell did you choose this? Like it's from a, from this gazillion million options. Um, I think I kind of fell into it. <laughs> um, so I did a Bachelor of Health Sciences because like any good Asian, I wanted to do the best thing and honor my parents and become a doctor. But I moved up to Auckland, 17. Living in halls was really hard for me and I totally bombed my first year. And then as the degree went on, I just fell in love with population health. One of my lecturers for my second year sent me this email and she was like, hey, lovely, like, what are your plans for next year? Um, Have you thought about doing honors? Like, you're a great student of mine. I'd really love to do honors with, like, supervise you in your honors. And so I was like shaking and I was like, ah, yeah. So I went and met with her and her name is Janine Wiles and she's just absolutely incredible and saw something in me that I couldn't really see in myself. And like honors was like the worst year of my life. It was so hard. You were kind of like an undergrad. I found that if you sort of formulated an opinion that reflected the degree that you were undertaking, you would get the grades. Whereas in like higher and like postgraduate you kind of have to have your own opinion and that was really scary for me especially I think looking back on it now as like an Asian young person who never really felt like I could voice my own opinion so I lacked a lot of confidence and I remember sitting in like my thesis meeting when we were deciding what my project was going to be and someone asked me so lovely what do you think and I was like me me you're asking (laughs) you're asking oh ah because I really didn't know that I could have an opinion. Um, And so I scraped through by the edge of my teeth. I had to get an extension. I had a little like mental health crisis sort of in around August and was diagnosed with anxiety and took a month off. So it was a real journey. And I don't really know how I got to Asian young people and ethnic identity, but I got there somehow. If we take it way back, into um your childhood and actually because i as we were speaking before we started recording is that this work obviously has such um lots of thread and intertwines into the personal identities and where they come from and stuff and for you as well so i would love to maybe ask you a little bit more about yeah your story as a child where did you grow up what kind of family did you grow up in what was it like I am Filipino and I was born in the Philippines and we moved to Singapore when I was about one and then my mum and I moved here to New Zealand at two and a half and my dad stayed in the Philipp- in Singapore until I was five and we moved in with my mum's sister and her family and so we were living in a bedroom in GI in Tamaki. Growing up I was pretty oblivious I think to a lot of the difficulty of being an Asian migrant, especially we moved sort of in the late 90s, so there weren't a lot of Asians around. And my mum is a dentist and I had to retrain and so worked really hard on that. But I don't feel like growing up I missed out on anything. I don't really feel too different until we moved to Osorohanga when I turned 10, so a very different vibe to uh, Wibiweta. Um, and yeah, just a really different way of life. And we were sort of one of maybe two Asian families in a town of 3,000. I did have my share of being bullied, 
for being Asian and a lot of, oh, she's the smart one. But what I kind of found it that's like in those communities, like while there was that sort of, there was no animosity behind it for the most part, I felt quite like connected to the kids I went to school with, even though we're all quite different, had different backgrounds and stuff like that. And then in my last two years of high school, I moved to a private school in Hamilton and that was really hard. Um, I was quite behind on school compared to the people that I went to high school with. And so that imposter syndrome of, oh, I'm supposed to be smart. Like I was a smart kid at back home, like back home. Um, you know, I would top the class without any struggle. I skipped a year in high school, so I only did four years of high school. So coming to this environment that was very white and had a lot of expectations was really hard. At the same time, we had moved to a church where I felt really ashamed to be Filipino because, yeah, it just wasn't really encouraged both at school and at church. And those are sort of the two places I was most of the time. And often when I was at church, I would be kind of teased for being the smart person but that sort of became my only identifier and so I have I have since then done quite a lot of unpacking and therapy um, around that um, and then at school it was very white so there wasn't a lot of freedom to feel like you could be yourself a lot of microaggressions um, you know little things like headmaster never pronouncing our name right and we had a catered lunch so I always ate white food at school and then I wanted white food at home and but I never really thought too much of it because my friendship group was like relatively diverse in ethnicity um yeah so it wasn't until I went to uni that I started to kind of unpack a lot of that stuff and how I felt about my identity what would make places where you felt a little bit excluded or a little bit like whitewashed versus some spaces where you didn't is the representation the only difference, like you, people around you or particular things people did or said that made it feel better, that you belong? I mean, unfortunately, I don't think there were a lot of experiences I had as an adolescent where I felt like I belonged, like in all the spaces that even at home, I was really uncomfortable with who I was. I was struggling with stuff that I felt like I couldn't talk to my parents about. And so I don't really think I felt a very good sense of belonging for quite a long time until maybe like the first year of my PhD, like two years ago. Yeah. Yeah. How did you work around PhD stuff? Like did it, you reckon, um, in any way change the way you think about belonging? Because now you're looking at the Asian young population and seeing that stuff. Yeah. Did it change, make it better, worse, or just... So I started, I started going to therapy in my honours year and sort of have had a few different counsellors since then, but I've had one counsellor since my time doing my PhD and she's such a G, I love her so much, she's the greatest. And I sort of met her preemptively knowing that my PhD is about essentially my own experience and wanting to make sure that I was safe, um, but also that the people I would be talking to were safe. And so I did quite a lot of unpacking because what was happening is I would do these interviews with these young people and I would realize like, oh my gosh, actually some of the stuff that I went through in high school was actually really racist. And so I would then start to unpack that. So it's a lot of unraveling um, and not just in school. Like um, I love the church, but the church is a really messy institution and I think has a long way to go in terms of making people feel safe culturally. And I've really struggled in that as well. 
it's only now that I feel quite safe within my particular niche of academia because I have awesome supervisors and good support. When you when you think about your own identity, whether it's ethnic and any other you know religion or any other parts that intertwine or intersect, what are some of the things that you love? I mean, I love Filipino food. Like it's so good, so good for the soul. I love. The Filipino spirit of celebration, how they're so loud. They're always late, but it's always such a good time. But I also, I think I love family. My family, so my mom's from a family of nine and my dad's from a family of 12. So I've got quite a big extended family for all the drama that having just so many people brings <laughs> and just so many different personality brings. Like I wouldn't trade any of them for the world. Like I love them. We always protect one another. Because, I mean, dating is always such a funny thing in Asian culture. And so sometimes mum will come up to me like, oh, is your cousin dating blah, blah, blah? And you're just like, so the weather's nice today. And so like we kind of have each other's backs so we don't, yeah. And so I think, yeah, that's just, that's really fun. With those parts of you and those cultural, I guess, things that you celebrate and as you said before, when you say Asian like or ethnic, there's or migrants, right? There's like a gazillion different cultures and so many variety and diversity in that regard. If you were like, let's say, if you were had to address <laughs> or speak to like teachers, university tutors, maybe or like workplace, like you know, people who kind of create spaces for others, what would you? How would you suggest? Or how would you? What would you want them to know about? acknowledging or bringing those facets up out of people my leaning towards health services as someone in population health is like cultural safety is a huge thing and cultural competency cultural awareness isn't enough like i need to feel safe that i can talk about for example especially around like parent dynamics is such a huge thing like if i say oh i'm having you know a hard time with my mom you know, you can't come and say to me, well, just cut her off, set good boundaries. And you're like, well, that's not really how it works. And now don't like, that's not really how it works. Just full stop. <laughs> like I need something where I feel like I can voice these particular nuances of my culture to you. I think representation is a huge thing. Just having people who look like you in all these different spaces, like those young people have talked about that being, being a huge thing. And I think Pakeha can only do so much and to create space but we really need to make space for the the voices that need to be heard I know that I really struggle like oh am I being seen because I'm Asian because I'm smart and because of like model minority and stuff like that I didn't know which one was which so that was very intertwined for me so I hated being called smart because to me it felt like all they could see that I was Asian and so just being able to understand there are different facets of a person, but they're not even just like talking about the nuances of dating or like even food is such a huge thing. Like I got really sick in my first year of uni because I wasn't used to eating like white food all the time. And it was really hard for me. Um, and I ended up seeing a nutritionist later on in life to kind of reconcile how I felt about food because there was a lot of, you know, even the way we talk about what's healthy food and what's not healthy food and 
there's so much work that needs to be done. The fact that we only talk about like white authors when we read because I'm a huge reader or white artists or white TV shows. And whenever there's an Asian, they're usually super dorky, real ugly and like have nothing to offer. Yeah, yeah. And I can, you know, I'm just thinking around when I started Storio, so a platform where I share stories of, I was specifically about women and gender diverse people, non-binary people, and then quickly became more of a, you know, it's just one axis of diversity, I guess, but, or representation, but actually ethnic, ethnic diversity was, came out probably stronger, I guess, because just through doing the work and reading and research and stuff, realizing how much of a, when we speak about gender diversity in workplaces, for example, we usually mean white women. And what happens with lots of companies is they say, oh, okay, well, we are, we need to be more diverse. We're going to have some women on our board or in our exec. It usually almost, almost always means white women. Like that narrative is just so, I can just, it's harmful again, because now you're just saying, cool, women are only worthy or whatever if they're white. I want to ask you, I'm, I'm, I'm really interested. You talk to nutritionists, you said, and you have, you go into, you go to therapy. How did you find um, those places in terms of cultural, um, is capacity the right word? Like cultural capability? I don't know, like. I have been really blessed to have really awesome counsellors. Um, two of the counsellors I worked with for over a year are both women of colour and that women of faith who are also on the same sort of journey of deconstructing their faith, which is sort of something that I've been on as I've started my PhD because I remember sort of going to people who I thought I could look up to, who I really admired, and I would say, like, I'm really struggling with this. And the rhetoric is like, oh, have you prayed about it? And I'm like, yeah, or maybe, or something along the lines of, like, maybe you're just depressed because of some un, some hidden sin or something, and you're like, well, that's bullshit. And so actually having people who had kind of on that same journey and, but I also, yeah, so that I've been really blessed to have really safe counsellors but I think having them being women of colour who are also academic and deconstruction of their faith have yeah they're like an awesome fit for me and I'm really thankful that I haven't had to hustle so hard for those relationships because I know that not every counsellor is that amazing unfortunately yeah yeah oh that's that's wonderful to hear and it reminds me you know whenever I hear a story like that I always think about when people say we don't hire for because someone is a woman or we, we don't want to hire for skin color. We hire for skills. Just even hearing what you're saying now, right? Like that safety, that knowledge, yeah. what do you consider skills, right? Like what do we say skills? What do we mean? What about, you know, if you're serving population and you are always serving a diverse population, unless you're like, Hey, we specifically sell this to white people. Like you're always, always, whether you are a teacher, whether you're hiring a tutor, whether you're hiring, you know, customer support, engineer, designer, a clerk, like anything, lawyer, right? There is so much to it that is actually that, that cultural safety that people can bring. And it's not automatic. Like it's not like, oh, just because straight away, you know, I'm Kazakh and you're Kazakh, we will jump definitely not but there is so much to it of like how much people have done of their own work to reconstruct some of those things or to or to be present in the space and yeah and I mean I was always really scared of 
offending the Pahia person, especially when I started. At the end of the like, I kind of came to a conclusion last year that it's like, actually, I'm tired of making of of making myself small to be comfortable for white people. Like, I've had enough. Obviously, with respect, um, and with good boundaries. But yeah, like I I'm not here to make a white person feel comfortable. I was kind of thinking through that, this whole, you know, we kind of touched on all the things that we want to touch on around like the system change and what needs to be done a bit better, your research, like where you come from and you belong, the, the sense of belonging and stuff. And I wonder for your personal experiences, and maybe if you want to bring any of your research, like what are some of the topics or some of the things that you wish we, either we talked more about among like uh, ethnic communities or our, our specific cultural groups, or maybe we were encouraged by like adults and teachers to talk more about? Um, I can think of a few, like off the top of my head, obviously mental health was a huge one. Yeah. Like I diagnosed with like clinical anxiety and depression and I'm on medication and that in and of itself was really hard to reconcile as an ethnic person, but then having to communicate that to my quite traditional family has been, you know, like my parents have been really awesome, but they have been points of tension with all different understandings of that. Um, and my other thing is like dating. <laughs> like, so I remember I went on a date, like for like during high school and stuff, like I liked white guys. And then I went like <laughs> last year, I went on a date with this Filipino guy and it was the first time I got on a date with someone who was Filipino because growing up the only Filipinos I was around were like my family and so I went on the date with this guy and as soon as he opened his mouth I was like oh my gosh it's like talking to my cousin oh no but I sat there for the whole 45 minutes being like do I not think he's attractive because I've been socially conditioned to think that white men are more attractive I suggest a second date turns out we just did a gel and now I'm dating the most amazing guy and he's Sri Lankan and so it's been really awesome doing that journey together and he's a primary school teacher and so hearing about his experiences being not only a male teacher but a brown male teacher has been really interesting but also how we navigate dating from two similar but quite different cultures and sort of our parental expectations and all of that and it's been and we both sort of sit within that church space and sort of those expectations and sort of demands and we're talking about like oh you know for cultural events I might have to wear a sari and I'm like oh but is that cultural appropriation because I don't really understand like what that is and having to learn the appropriate customs and things like that so I think it'd be cool if we talked about that more because a lot of the like in our family we don't talk about dating like it's like you don't date and then you're married and then you have kids and there's not really a lot of conversation in between. Yeah, so you don't really get taught how to date in a healthy way and particularly like the Western church does a really poor job of teaching young people what healthy and safe, fulfilling relationships look like. So I have been victim to and a lot of my female friends in particular have been victim to lots of abusive and really toxic relationships because the patriarchy is real and so yeah I think I think it's cool to unpack that but people are uncomfortable with exposing the truth I 
identity, ethnicity, but actually, yeah, things like dating, things like relationships, those things are on people's minds sometimes more often than like all other, you know, especially when you're younger as well and you're figuring out your identity. I feel like definitely when it comes to Western narratives, like dating is way more accepted as a thing, still is talked about, like at least from my experience, like all my friends who are Pakeha, I don't think their parents talk to them at all about relationships and stuff. But yet at least it's not, doesn't need to be kept secret as much as I, th- I feel like definitely like in Kazakh culture, although I, my mom was quite different um, as growing up, but all of my friends had to hide their relationships. It was lots of drama. It was lots of, to- and because of that, lots of toxicity, but it's just something that is like part of the culture so much that it's almost, yeah, like are you just so ingrained in you. It's just, you're so used to it. Yeah. I mean, and it's been so interesting, like even like, when do you tell someone, like, when do you tell your family? And like, for him, it was a really big deal. And like, I remember, oh gosh, nah, he'll let me tell the story. Like we, his, his dad works at Sylvia Park and we had just gone on like our fourth day and he was so scared that he like dropped my hand and like, I don't, and I was like, and for him, it was really like, he really wanted to honor his family and tell them all face to face before he like introduced me and it was quite like formal but I dated white guys before that and they just like did not care but also for me because my family lives so many different places that was just impossible so even just like those little things is so like different um and I'm like even you know like I go when I go to their events I'm like oh like what do I wear like can I wear can I show my shoulders like can I and all those sort of little things as well so it's it's super fun. He's the best. Having someone who can resonate with you in that sort of cultural sense is really, I yeah, I don't think I could be as confident doing the work that I do if I didn't have him backing me um, because I know that he can understand to an extent what I go through. And so that's been really, like, that's been really freeing for me. I think being able to talk about the difficulty and the strength kind of in tandem and sort of talking about the difficulty doesn't take away from the beauty, but talking about the beauty doesn't take away from just that complexity that I think the nuances that people don't want to address or aren't willing to, or are scared to. Yeah. 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 And even, um, I think those conversations, and I don't know, you know, at least when you were younger, there are places like schools and universities where you can kind of encourage that a little bit, like the access to younger minds are a little bit more I don't know, democratize was the word, like, you know, more accessible, I guess. Um, you can, if you want to, go through channels, even social media, right, as like a, as a channel. And I wish those conversations were still had much more with our older migrants who came maybe here when they were older or grew up here, but still haven't had the opportunity to discuss those things because I feel, I mean, relationships and dating, like, stereo- oh, there's so- all these layers, right? And... A lot of people who came here when they were yeah, 40, 30, 50, 60, maybe haven't had the opportunity to safely, openly have discussions about those things. And now it's almost, I know that a lot of younger people struggle to be this kind of sort of two worlds. Like, I love my culture, I love those parts. I don't like those parts of my culture and I want to talk about them more openly, but I can't because there's this parental situation going on. Yeah, and I think that's why having these spaces and even just having these conversations is so awesome. Like, it was funny, like, when that article came out, like, my partner's parents and, like, my parents were super proud of the work, but I don't, 
I'm not sure, you know, if the understanding of like what I'm actually doing is there. And that's fine. You know, I think, you know, we stand on the shoulder of giants. Like we wouldn't, I get the honor of learning how to be, of learning like emotional literacy because they did all the hard work that they did beforehand. And that's how I honor them. I think, yeah, like honor and family is like a whole nother kettle of fish but yeah like I honor my parents by doing what I can now because of the sacrifices that they made and taking that even further and I think that's honoring to them even if they don't always agree with me I told my parents I didn't want to do medicine oh my god (laughs) it was real bad because I didn't have another option like I was like I don't know what I want to do and you know for someone who has sacrificed their whole lives to be like you can't afford to know what to do. And so that was really hard. And it wasn't really until I settled into my PhD that they were like, oh, okay. And I think even now they're like, we don't really know what to do. So we're proud of her. Yeah, like around mental health and even just the way that we deal with certain family members. Like one of the things about Filipino culture is like, you know, they want to toss things under the carpet and pretend like everything's okay. And it's so, it's so complex. And it, and it does, you know, and when people are like, well, you're an adult now, you can make your own decisions. I'm like, yeah but the crippling guilt says otherwise and so it it is cool having like friends that you can kind of like commiserate and share those stories with yeah yeah for sure oh lovely thank you so much for our wonderful chat i wanted to jump oh such an honor yeah into quick fire questions if i may but before we do that i just wanted to ask if there's anything else that you wanted to like that maybe something i didn't ask you or something that you wanted to add if if there's anything comes to your mind I just wanted to say thank you so much for creating this space. A lot of the work I do in therapy is like tending to my inner child and my inner child would be so thankful for the work that you do. I mean, and my my adult child self is also super thankful, but this is the stuff that these young people want. And so to have these spaces, it's such an honor. So thank you for the work that you do. Yeah. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you for being here and sharing the story, you know? Yeah. Okay. Well, let's go into fire, quick fire questions. Uh, first one is food. You mentioned you like Filipino food. I would love to hear your favorite dish. Okay. So it's called, it's oxtail kare kare, which is like a peanut butter curry and nobody makes it better than my dad. Nice. So I was, my, my next question would have been, where should I, where can we get it in Auckland or New Zealand? My dad's house. <laughs> Um, but there are some really good, um, like home cooked and all and Tamaki has really good Filipino food, but my dad's food cannot be beaten. One of my best friends, Hannah, like dreams about my dad's food. So I love that. Okay. Okay, cool. Um, if you were the main character in a TV show or a movie, what would it be? Or what would it be about? Oh my gosh. Okay. So my immediate thought was Lara Jean from To All The Boys, because I was such yeah, I got a bunch of friends texting me being like, this is like you were in high school, but I would pick the brown boy in the second movie because Peter Kaczynski can just bugger off. Oh my God, I loved it. I love that movie. It was such a, and I loved how I think almost, I don't know if it's the first time, but it's one of the first times when I watch a movie and it wasn't like, look, this is an Asian person. It was just about a person who happened to be Asian and they've incorporated a lot of that into the, into the plot without making it like a, a trope, I guess. Yeah, I love Lara Jane. She's the best. Bit problematic, but aren't we all in high school? If you had to suggest, propose one policy, either to New Zealand government or to like an organization or organizations, 
what would it be? Mandatory cultural safe counselling training for high school, for like counsellors, but also for deans and for whoever looks after pastoral all the way from primary to to high school. But also pay our teachers more, please. The last one, which is my favourite. Uh, what makes you feel like a badass? Oh, what makes you feel like a badass? I think something recently is I've gone through like a whole weird interesting time with the way I think about my body which is also culturally ingrained but societally ingrained wearing an outfit that I scored like second hand for like a steal and wearing earrings that I knew were made from like a small business and my makeup is all done and I get to talk about something I'm passionate about I feel pretty cool yeah Awesome. Cool. Cool. Lovely. Thank you so much for our time. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. That was lovely. Thank you for listening. If you haven't already, check out the 14 other incredible conversations in the series. Share, subscribe, send to someone who might benefit from either feeling seen or learning more about ethnic experiences in Aotearoa. These conversations are a collaboration of Belong Aotearoa, Planet FM, Storio, and Sportway Takati. So you can find the links to those excellent organizations in the bio. Thank you to our funder, Auckland Council Regional Development Fund, and to New Zealand On Air. Yeah.